This is the Political Monitor Podcast, brought to you by the Concord Monitor. In this week's show, we talk about the state's next battle royale, Kelly Ayotte versus Maggie Hassan for the U.S. Senate. We also touch on a Carly Fiorina editorial board here at the Monitor and look at the approaches that young voters are taking to the primary. So I'm joined this week, as I have been for most weeks in the past, but perhaps not for most weeks in the future, by John Van Fleet, our politics editor. Hi, John. Hi, Clay. What, are you going to announce that I'm leaving to go to New Hampshire Public Radio? And, and I am not going to announce that for you. Oh, okay. No. And uh, our politics reporter, Casey McDermott. Hello, Hello. Clay. Hello, Hello Casey. John. Um, so, you know, we'll get to that other business later. Mm-hmm. Starting out this uh, week, we'll talk about kind of the, the biggest news to really hit hit the state's political landscape, which was Governor Maggie Hassan's announcement that she's going to seek the Democratic nomination to run for U.S. Senate against current Senator Kelly Ayotte. Um, this was a an announcement that was kind of widely expected, and yet no one quite believed it was going to happen until the actual announcement came, I believe in the form of a YouTube video. So, Casey... Um, you know, looking at the governor, looking at her decision, you know, what do you think finally um, pushed her to get into the race? Um, I mean, part of me thinks it was just a matter of timing and kind of waiting for other things that were going on to resolve themselves, namely the budget. Um, I think that this obviously has been in the works or at least seriously under consideration for a number of months. And it was just a matter of kind of, you know, this is when all the pieces lined up. Um, I think it was Kathleen Ronane with the Associated Press who pointed out on Twitter as well um, shortly after Hassan's announcement that this time, the timing of the announcement comes right at the be- beginning of a fundraising quarter. Um, so that gives her kind of, you know, a full range of kind of potential firepower to build up. Mm-hmm. And I think that that speaks to what a lot of people have been saying about this race, which is that it is likely to be a, uh, you know, heavily um, watched, heavily contested, heavily spent upon, uh, you know, there's going to be a lot of money and a lot of barbs being thrown around. Well, I mean, just race. just like in 2014, Jean Shaheen versus Scott Brown was yeah. kind of one of the marquee national mm-hmm. races. Um, this is, you know, yet again, shaping up to be another big race nationally. Yeah, I think it's even poised to be more intense than the Shaheen-Brown fight, because from the beginning with that one, you had, um, you know, the Democrats always had the argument that they could trot out against Scott Brown, that he wasn't from New Hampshire, and that seemed to be a real sticking point for him that was hard to shake. Here you have two highly accomplished, um, you know, highly respected among, you know, uh, their own kind of respected parties, um, leaders who are from New Hampshire, you know, have built their careers here. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think it's going to be a much different dynamic than what we saw with that. And they're two, you know, 
very, uh, you know, very capable politicians who bring with them, you know, very uh, kind of ready to fight, um, you know, parties and coalitions and activists and all of that stuff. Well, and Democrats have really just been waiting almost to have Mm -hmm. that candidate in their side, on their side rather, to to finally start. I mean, they've been attacking Ayotte already, Mm -hmm. of course, but... Um, but to actually have someone specific to defend is, I think, a big deal. I have a leaky faucet at home, and I'm pretty sure Ray Buckley would say that that's Kelly Ayotte's fault. <laughs> well, that's one of the joys of working in a newsroom is that you do get a constant stream of email press releases that are blaming the other side for whatever random yeah. negative news event of the day yeah, transpires. I, I don't anticipate that will slow up anytime soon. No. Um, you know, one of the things that I'm, I'm actually interested about, and I haven't told you guys that I'm going to ask you this question, so if you don't have a response, it's my fault. Um, But John or Casey, I'm just thinking about, you know, Maggie Hass and Kelly Ayotte. What kind of connections or links have they had in the past at all? Have have their paths particularly crossed before? Well, I think Governor Hassan was in the state Senate when Kelly Ayotte was attorney general, and I don't know the specific piece of legislation or lawsuit, but I do believe that there's been some overlap and there's also been some level of overlap between kind of federal state issues, you know, appearing at certain press conferences on, like, I think there was one maybe on the opioid epidemic or other kind of um, issues of national importance that tie back to the state. So in their professional capacity, they've certainly been at, you know, in the same place at the same time. Talking just kind about of similar issues. Yeah, but, just wondering yeah. if there'd been some sort of clashes beforehand, because certainly you get the impression now that there's just you know there's no no love lost certainly in kind of getting down to the business of running for this running for this seat. Um, to me, I, I think you know the Democrats are betting on a strong Hillary Clinton showing in the general election. You know, the thinking would go that that if it's that close of a race, that if Hillary Clinton is the Democratic nominee and therefore uh, a lot of Democrats show up, that that could give Hassan enough to beat Ayotte. And then on the other flip side is there's always an advantage to the incumbents, generally speaking, especially if they haven't done anything terrible. Um, And, you know, so has, has Ayotte done enough wrong to lose her seat. Right. I don't think a lot of people think that she has. So that's why I think what Casey's saying is this is like, you know, it's a really interesting election when you look at these these two people. And yeah. Well, I mean, I, I, I do think, you know, you, you know, even the most objective, you know, outside observer would have to say that Kelly Ayotte has been very, very careful oh, for yeah. most of her term yeah. in the U.S. Senate in terms of trying to cultivate a bipartisan image, in terms of trying to cultivate a an image that New Hampshire voters mm-hmm. specifically would appreciate, you mm-hmm. know, working with someone like John McCain, mm-hmm. who's still really mm-hmm. widely liked here. Um, so, I mean, I, I, I do think, you know, it's, it's a long game. I mean, you're in a, a Senate term is six mm-hmm. years, but, she, I mean, she's been playing a very long game. Yeah, I think also, I wrote a, a profile of her a few months ago right after she announced her re-election bid and was talking to some people about kind of, you know, where she stands and how she's evolved as a leader, because she kind of came in as like a blank slate to the Senate. And um, one of the interesting things that someone pointed out to me then was that she has almost been positioning herself 
kind of similarly to the way that Jean Shaheen tried to position herself going into um, her reelection fight, where it was, you're seeing her kind of turn her focus, um, you know, very intently back on New Hampshire, focusing on, you know, heavily on the opioid epidemic, on other um, issues related to the environment that affect New Hampshire. Um, and um, I think that that is definitely a concerted strategy on her part to poise, you know, to be poised as this person who is, you know, fighting for New Hampshire, because that's the, the message that Maggie Hassan now is trying to bring to her own campaign and saying that there hasn't been enough of that from the Senate so mm-hmm. far. But in, in a way, it's, it's a, as, as widely anticipated as the move is, it's kind of a high-risk play for Maggie oh, Hassan. Oh, it's a big risk, yeah. I mean, because, yeah. because if you do the thought experiment where Maggie Hassan just decides to run for re-election as governor, she would have had a, quite a clear shot at that, mm-hmm. I think most people would agree. The overwhelming favorite, yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. So to, to put that nearly certain deal aside mm-hmm. for the much more much more tenuous you know strategy of running for senate i mean it's it's as i said high risk um that being said there was a uh, i believe it's a was a unh poll that came yeah. out on monday um that did suggest that they that already they're basically deadlocked yeah um i think ayot has uh it's Forty-five percent of likely voters say they would vote for Ayotte, forty-three for Shaheen or for Hassan, excuse me, one um, percent for someone else, and eleven percent undecided. Um, if the Senate election were held today, and now obviously we're you know more than a year out from that, um, so a lot can change between now and then. But um, although this is also not a situation where either of these people are particularly unknown, right? You know, New Hampshire right. voters definitely know yeah. both of these. These candidates. Yeah, although I will say it's important to look at, you know, in the same poll led off with, um, you know, have you decided on your vote? And this actually, I, I should put this caveat in here that this was done in the week before Governor Hassan made her announcement. So nothing was known for certain at this point about her intentions um, when people were being asked about this. But um, only uh, 10% of people were, or I guess 20% combined, were either definitely decided or leaning towards someone, and the remaining, like, you know, 80 so, 80 or so percent um, still hadn't made up their mind, so. Um, well, there's a, there's, a, there's a lot of ground and to, to cover and a lot of time, yeah. to, time to go. You know, the funny thing about this, too, is, like, everyone's anticipating, for so long we had heard... The other candidates who are considering to run for governor, like, well, we're waiting to find out what Maggie Hassan's going mm-hmm. to do. We're waiting. We're waiting. And so there's this great anticipation of, of what is Maggie going to do? What's the decision going to be? Yes, you heard rumors that, no, she's going to run for governor. Yes, she's leaning towards Senate. And then the announcement comes out via a YouTube video. There's no big rally. There's no big press conference. There's no speech on the steps of the state house. <laughs> None of that. It's a it's a two minute twenty second video on YouTube. It was a nice video, but this is the same way that Hillary Clinton announced that she was running for president. And it's it, it's interesting. And I think Allie's going to be looking at that for this Sunday's cap beat, which is is our this a reporter, new trend? Allie Morris, yes. our reporter. <laughs> yeah. Um... 
Yeah, it'll be interesting. I wonder if Governor Hassan will do a listening tour of the state before she starts campaigning. I mean, it is true, though. One of the things that uh, I've already seen some Republican kind of pokes at uh, Governor Hassan about is, you know, kind of using the trappings of the governor's office to run for Senate. Mm-hmm. And certainly that's going to be an issue that we continue to see. So yeah, I, I wonder I, how... I'm... Go ahead. I mean, yeah, no, I've, I've seen the same the same arguments, but immediately it just came to mind that that seems like a difficult um, thing to have stick in a presidential year where you have so many sitting governors and senators running for their respective posts, too. Just something that I, oh, I don't oh, know. Oh, sure, yeah. sure. And, and, but that also brings us, John, what to, what to what you were saying, which is this also now throws open the governor's race in New Hampshire. And there are so many names at this point that it scarcely seems worth them, worth mentioning them all. Although, uh, I guess Jean Shaheen's daughter, Stephanie, who's in a, out in the Portsmouth yeah, area... she's is, a Portsmouth city councilor. ...is considering a run... Um, Colin Van Ostern, uh, also on the Democratic side, is widely believed to be running. Uh, there's a bunch of... Um, Mark Connolly, the former um, security uh, chief of uh, the state. You know, Chris, on, on the Republican side, we have Chris Sununu, who's, who's the only formal announced mm-hmm. uh, candidate for the position so far. Mm-hmm. Um, and then some talk about folks like, you know, Jeb Bradley. Jeannie like, Forrester. You know, Chuck uh, Morris. Folks from the the Senate, basically mm-hmm. the the state Senate, which of course is where Maggie Hassan came mm-hmm. from. It's important important to note. Mm-hmm. So, so that'll be an interesting interesting race to watch as well. It seems very difficult to even remotely handicap yeah. that one at this yeah. point. I think it'll be a robust primary on both sides. Um, it should be interesting. Well, and a true kind of you know a, a, you know a big big generational shift for at least the Democrats. Mm-hmm. You know, you're getting a substantially younger. Mm-hmm younger candidates on that side. Um, so moving on, uh, Republican candidate Carly Fiorina was here at the Monitor on uh, Monday. She did an editorial board meeting with some of the paper's uh, staff. And John or Casey, whichever one of you wants to tackle that and tell us a little bit about what uh, Ms. Fiorina had to say. Well, I can at least say that I was I was there for a portion of that meeting because I had to immediately vacate the Fiorina edit board because I had to post the story about Hassan running against Ayat. So once that uh, web work was done, I was able to rejoin the edit board. Uh, it started off with a lot of talk about um, guns, domestic policy. The second half was a lot about foreign policy, the United States' place in the world. And mm-hmm. Megan Doyle wrote, wrote the story. One of, we really got deep into the discussion about the uh, United States vis-a-vis uh, Russia and the no-fly zone and ISIS and Syria and, and fearing his comments that she would not speak with Vladimir Putin. And uh, we kind of, some of the other editors there were bringing up uh, John F. Kennedy, the Cuban Missile Crisis, and the aspect of keeping dialogue open and isn't that even if you are at loggerheads at least leaving the channels of communication open isn't that more wise foreign policy and so she clarified her statement a little bit saying well i didn't say i was never going to talk to putin she's just saying i wouldn't talk to him now she was saying that the united states should have much more uh 
have a greater military strength, have a show of force, negotiate from a position of strength, not weakness. And she blamed that weakness at uh, on the president, President mm -hmm. Obama. And um, you know, I mean, I think one of the one of the interesting aspects about Carly Fiorina, and of course, everyone kind of looking at the Republican race, you know, notes the fact that she's the only female candidate in a in a in a field of you know some fourteen or fifteen candidates now. But you know, she's she is running at least in terms of the issues she talks about and kind of the the tone that she takes. She's running a in many ways, a very she's a very aggressively kind mm -hmm. of postured campaign. You know, it's it's quite um, it's definitely on the very on the mm -hmm. conservative mm -hmm. side. I mean, the the more conservative mm -hmm. side of the spectrum of candidates. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, I think you know that's definitely a fair characterization. I think that she her delivery, I think, is what makes the difference. Whereas she might be saying similar things in theory, um, policy wise, to some of the more kind of boisterous candidates or some of the more uh, like outspoken ones, but she's very kind of smooth in her speaking style. And I think that that, um, you know, a, a number of voters have remarked that that, you know, really gets them to listen in and pay close attention to what she's saying. Well, it's interesting because, you know, of course, the, the other candidate on the Republican side where that's where, you know, kind of tone seems mm -hmm. to have made a lot of big difference mm -hmm. has been Carson. Yeah. A lot of people note is he speaks incredibly quietly mm -hmm. when he makes his mm -hmm. his public appearances. So it's it's interesting that to to think that just you know kind of just the volume at which you're speaking, mm -hmm. just that mm -hmm. basic kind of technical thing makes yeah. such a difference. It is interesting that you know just thinking back on some of the events that I've covered recently. Um, you know, I covered an event on Monday with Hillary Clinton, and um, sometimes she can be a little bit more. Uh, you know, she she does kind of vary her her tone depending on what she's talking about. Now, in this case, it was pretty somber because she was addressing gun violence and the recent mass shooting um, at the community college in Oregon, as well as other mass shootings and her plans to address that. But um, her tone from the outset was just very, um, you know, soft. And it, it really kind of had gripped the attention of the people in the room. And then, you know, at one point she actually called up a, a mother who was uh, the mother of a child who was killed in the Sandy Hook Elementary um, shooting. And her voice was, you know, cracking and kind of visibly emotional there. So um, I think that that, you know, is another case of a candidate kind of instead of shouting to get people's attention and softening can also be an effective way to do that. So. Mm -hmm. Well, and of course, on the other side, you do have someone like Donald Trump, who mm -hmm. so much of his appeal for people mm -hmm. was basically the delivery mm -hmm. of, of what he was saying. Mm -hmm. um, you know, he, he just delivered it in a very, in a very, you know, mm -hmm. as you said, boisterous. That's a good word, boisterous. Um, and it looks right now that as though, at least in the real clear politics average of polls, that Carly Fiorina is actually second here yeah. in New Hampshire. Yeah, so she's, she's had a pretty big boost since the that second debate. She doesn't waffle on a lot of things. You know, she's very clear mm -hmm. on message. You brought up Ben Carson. You know, Ben Carson, he he can wander. He he's kind of more candid, and so he sometimes he'll go off in places that you haven't heard before. Fiorina is very much on message, you know, even mm -hmm. things that 
she has said before that have that has kind of led to some criticism. You know, she sticks to those talking points. She very much does. Yeah. Which I mean, of course, can be a considerable advantage for a political for a presidential candidate who has to do X number of events every day and whatnot. Being able to have that kind of discipline uh, can make them formidable. Of course, it can also make them seem over over rehearsed as well. So it's um you know that's the balancing act there. Um. Uh, so Carly Fiorina was here on on uh, Monday, and apparently we're going to be uh, seeing Rand Paul on Friday. So. The candidates continue to make their way to the monitor, make their ways to the monitor, and we'll, we will hear them out, as we always do. Um, moving on then to um, kind of our, uh, the next segment here. Um, on Sunday, in the Sunday monitor, we ran a couple of stories, one by Casey, uh, another by reporter Ella Nielsen, uh, talking about young voters, uh, kind of the elusive young voter. They were seen as being instrumental in propelling President Obama to his first term in, in office. Um, but of course, they're also a notoriously difficult group to turn out mm. to actually vote in elections. So Ella wrote about the Democrats. Casey wrote about the Republicans. Um, so Casey, what what kind of issues um, were most important to the to the young voters that you talked to? So I, uh, I shadowed a meeting of the um, St. A's College Republicans last week, and then um, my colleague Nick Reed had talked to a bunch of Republican voters at um, a recent event at University of New Hampshire, and I also worked some of those comments into the story. And one of the things that stood out as a common theme um, was that, you know, while some of the voters said that they did care about um, or feel strongly about certain kind of so-called social or moral issues, particularly abortion more so than same-sex marriage, um, though some of them did say that they still felt strongly about that, um, you know, they were more concerned about economic policy and the future of Social Security, which, you know, is kind of odd to hear a college student say that they care about that. But the way that one of them described it to me was like, you know, I work a job on campus and I see the, the Social Security being taken out of my paycheck every week. And I wonder if that's going to be there for me when I retire. So, um, you know, other people said that they cared about the balanced budget, um, you know, making it easier for people to find jobs, especially if you're a young person graduating from college. So their mindset was very much kind of in that zone. And one of the things that also came out as a theme was that, um, you know, they, the voters that I talked to that were, you know, the young Republicans kind of pushed back on the notion that they were the party, the Republican Party is the party of kind of old people and said that, you know, yeah, they have a lot of friends who kind of gravitate toward the Democrat, the Democratic Party because of social issues, but that, you know, the party gets kind of stereotyped in their eyes unfairly sometimes as having very kind of, you know, monolithic positions on immigration or climate change or same-sex marriage even and these voters had kind of more nuanced positions than than that so well and i think what's interesting about that is you know that the notion to me the notion that i had just in because i edited and you know put the stories together for the sunday monitor on my on my night shift here at the paper is that those the college republicans had that that emphasis on practicality mm -hmm that you mentioned about let's actually get things done yeah. whereas the many of the democratic voters that uh who ellen nilson spoke with you know specifically we're talking about supporting bernie sanders 
and supporting Bernie Sanders explicitly because almost he's not practical. And now I'm putting words into their mouth, really. But that, you know, he's a more idealistic kind of, they see him as kind of less beholden to the Washington establishment than a longtime fixture like Hillary Clinton, although, of course, he's been a longtime fixture as, as a member of the U.S. Senate. Um, you know, but just seeing that, you know, they, they like the kind of the idea, the... Yeah, there's... I mean, but it's almost like an opposite reaction between the two the two sides. One of the quotes from one of the voters that Ella spoke to was that, you know, I was going to vote for her, her being Clinton, but she plays by the rules a bit too much, and I think we definitely need change. Um, she probably would have done a good job taking care of the country, but I think things need to turn around a bit more drastically. So, you know, there was, there was some variation in... Um, mm-hmm. In that, but I think just kind of adding to your point about the the level of support, um, according to a UNH poll that Ella cited in her story, um, 58% of voters age 18 to 34 said they were supporting Sanders, um, while Clinton had 17% favorability in the same age bracket. So um, that is a fairly substantial gap. Um, and it, it narrows, you know, as, as you get into the kind of the older age brackets, so. And this is where we come to the, um, the Politico, man, uh, Politico website um, kind of clickbait exclusive, exclusive of yesterday, which claimed that some Hillary Clinton insiders were urging her to abandon New Hampshire, basically, saying that they thought that, it, you know, kind of given her current uh, deficit behind Bernie Sanders in the state, that it was unlikely that she would win here or that she would ever catch up and that she should just, uh, you know, concentrate on the other 48 states. That being said, however... It was curiously built upon a lot of anonymous Clinton insiders and no-name sources. And what, which, you know, tends to suggest that it's, you know, two or three people in D.C. who know the Clintons and who called up Politico and are trying to float a trial balloon to make the campaign kind of rethink its strategy. Yeah, I mean, I think that, yes, Clinton is behind in the polls here, but if you look at, like, the organizational heft that her campaign has right now, like, they have a very strong, very methodical ground game that's playing out. Um, You know, and a lot of the other campaigns are, are building that, Sanders included, but I think that, you know, from the perspective of someone who has watched this take shape in the form of campaign offices and all of the outreach and stuff like that, I think that it's pretty far-fetched to assume that that's all going to kind of scale back anytime soon. And look at the, and we were talking, Casey, look at the endorsements Mm -hmm. that the Clinton campaign has versus Mm -hmm. the Sanders campaign. It's a, Mm -hmm. Clinton has a veritable who's who Mm -hmm. in the New Hampshire Democratic Party already endorsing Mm -hmm. her. You know, I guess that to the flip side is if the voters are overwhelmingly yeah. going to Sanders, you know, that that makes Clinton more of an establishment candidate. And if right. people are mm-hmm. pissed off at the establishment, then maybe that's not a good thing. I think there is kind of a curious disconnect there where she does have so many um, supporters in the kind of political class in New Hampshire, but there is, you know, she is a little bit farther behind in terms of what the polls are saying. Um, And I think that that speaks to the themes that you were talking about. But at the same time, I think that it's, we're still, what, four months out from the primary? Right. Um, You know, and the Clintons have made no secret of the fact that they are very fond of New Hampshire and they have 
you know, several times seen the state kind of pull through for them. So, so. yeah, if she comes in second and closes the gap right at the end, mm-hmm. she could be the comeback kid she part could. two. Yeah. <laughs> I'm only one point behind Bernie Sanders. Look when at how well I'm doing. Dog dies. Exactly. Um, I mean, I do think one of the things that's interesting about, um, you know, talking about Clinton in New Hampshire, though, is just the real disconnect in the polls, mm-hmm. which, which, you know, essentially meaning that, you know, she is behind Bernie Sanders. Again, this is kind of a polling average by about 11 points in New Hampshire. Mm-hmm. So sizable, probably not insurmountable. But nationally, she's along the lines of 16 points ahead of him. Mm-hmm. I mean, a formidable national lead. And so, I mean, in, in a way, you can almost understand the view of some insiders who say, you know, the national strategy is the way to go. That being said, I'm not sure that those national numbers would stay the way they are if she actually, mm-hmm. you know, kind of left and decided to... Yeah, I mean, I don't think... I mean, the, the concept of the Clinton campaign entirely closing up shop in New Hampshire is inconceivable. But, you know, could I see a world in which maybe they scale back or slow down a little bit and redirect some of those resources to another state where they want to start setting up shop because they do, I mean, if it's a campaign, it does have a finite amount of money to spend and could perhaps be spending that on organizers and other staffers in other states. But I mean, I I don't, I, I don't know. I mean, the sense that I get from the staff here doesn't seem to indicate that they're, you know, moving in that direction. Yeah. I think finite amount of money and Hillary Clinton. Oh, we'll see. Even even near infinity can have its limits, I guess. Um, So that all being said, and covering all of these these stories this week. In case there's is there anything else I've I've missed or you'd like to note? Are you actually going to touch on the biggest news of the week? I think that's might be where we're heading right now. Yes. Okay. All right. So. Shall you or shall I? Uh, You shall. Okay, well, this is going to be, for now, uh, probably our final podcast, or, you know, she might come back. We'll see. Um, uh, With uh, Ms. Casey McDermott, who is going to be, this is actually her final day, this Wednesday is her final day at the Monitor, and she will reappear in a week or so. Yep. She will reappear a week or so at New Hampshire Public Radio and hopefully doing, well, I guess I guess we should try to be more competitive this, than this, but I was going to say hopefully doing the same great work for them that she has done for us. I like to think that our friends at Public Radio have been listening to the podcast all along and they were so impressed by exactly. Casey's performance, they recruited her and had to have her. Natural magnetism from the podcast. So. I don't know about that. The but... first podcast star. It will be very... The first of many, I am sure, to be launched from the Political Monitor podcast. I'll never forget you guys <laughs> in this small closet <laughs> studio that, in which it's I got my qu- start. It, it feels like a closet. I'm sorry. I know it's a crying room, but... Um, So-called because editors yeah. used to take reporters in here to yell at them many, many ages ago. That has never happened to me. No, I think we've kind of stopped using the crying room as the crying room here, so... Um, I come in here to cry frequently. <laughs> well, that's what I thought per- it was pers- for. Personal like if you needed like a personal crying room. No, I, you know, an editor would come in here and you know sit somebody down mm-hmm. and say, you know, you've not been measuring up here recently. 
I heard it was also uh, from time to time the shouting room where people went <laughs> to, <laughs> to air out some grievances, some differences, but you know, were sound travels. Um, I, you know, it's for me. Uh, all kidding aside, Casey, you are a great reporter. You've got a great future ahead of you. You are a a absolute star. It's been a pleasure, and you know there are. My perspective is always partially informed by being an editor who's kind of on the desk at night and seeing the stories that come in and seeing what they're like. And one of the things that I can always always have been able to count on with Casey is that you know the stories are there. They're always there. When and they that, get there, is well, well, yeah, <laughs> that, is, that is fair. No, but they are, you know, but they are obviously yeah. solid and well done. And well, as you. I said, I'm sure you'll do great. And um, John and I will have to regroup and figure out our our future. <laughs> well, I will. I will miss this podcast and this newsroom oh, yes. dearly. So. so, but anyway, but so with those, with that lump in our throats, all. I think it's time to close out this week's podcast. John, thank you. Thank you. And Casey. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Remember, you can subscribe to this podcast through iTunes or Stitcher. And for all of the latest political news, just go to politics.conqueredmonitor.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time with a somewhat different lineup.